Now, the Lord willing, tonight I want to get into one other life example out of the Scriptures concerning this very thing that we're talking about, confessing by faith. Now, do you know that none of the Old Testament saints had a Scripture? Everything they got was a rhema. How many of you realize that? They didn't have the Bible. When God spoke to them, He spoke to them. They heard it and they acted on it. And what do they call them today? Faith. Pillars of faith. Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham didn't have chapter and verse. God spoke to him, and he acted. Noah didn't have a scripture verse. He couldn't even take them and show them the book of Genesis and say, here's what God told me to do. Here's the dimensions and everything. He got a rhema from God. God, who in sundry times and divers manner has spoken in the past times, hath in these last days spoken unto us through his Son. Jesus Christ wants to speak to us. He has spoken to us in the Word. He will speak to us because my sheep hear my voice. And he will speak to us if we'll listen. And when he speaks to us, then we begin to walk that out by our confession. I know that my need is met in this situation. Time and time again, God brings these experiences into my life. And I have to ahead of time say, well, I have no possible answer in the natural for it. But I have this assurance that God has said he will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And even though I don't see that need met right now, it is met. Even though I don't see the answer right now, it is answered because he said it's answered. Now, does that please God? Now, I'll guarantee you one thing. If you go around saying, I'm losing everything, it's all done, I'm finished, I'm going under, this is the end, what can you expect from God? Don't let that man expect anything the scripture says he that waver like the wave of the sea don't let him expect anything but god is not going to give him anything without faith it's impossible to please god i'm just challenging you this morning to begin to stretch your faith move out and begin to believe that if the lord is dwelling in you and his spirit is dwelling in you and his spirit is here to teach you all things and bring all things you remember to whatever jesus said to you then he wants to teach you and reveal Jesus Christ to you and reveal the will of God for you and the purpose of God for your life so you can know exactly what God wants you to do and be in the days ahead. I don't believe that God saved any of you just by happenstance. He saved you for a purpose, and he has a divine purpose for you. And if you'll be quiet and listen to his voice, Maybe just sit there with a pencil and pen. Say, now, Lord, if you have anything to say to me about anything at all, just speak to my heart, and then just be quiet. And if you get it, begin to get an impression, just write it out and see what it says. And you probably won't even sound like you when you write it out. But just don't, you know, don't jump and run out and, and buy a big piece of property on the basis of what you just wrote down, but, but write it down and then say, okay, Lord, now if this is of you, you're going to confirm this to me. And, Lord, I'm doing this because I want to begin to really learn how to recognize your voice when you talk to me. And I believe as we practice this, we, we practice this, we're going to begin to hear God speak to us more and more and more, and the gifts of the Spirit are going to flow in this body, and we're going to see the power of God move like we've never seen before. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to see. That's what I've desired from the very beginning. I believe that in these last days, God is looking for people that will believe him 
to be everything he says he is and that he'll do what he said in his word. He said, greater things than these shall they do which believe on me. I don't know about you, but I believe if we listen to God and he speaks to us and we act on what he says, we're going to see things happen just like they happened when Jesus walked on earth, don't you? I want that. Father, I ask you to let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer, that we'll not allow ourselves to just say anything, but we'll begin to listen to you and get the Word of God down into our hearts, first of all, and then let you speak to us and just say those things which you say to us. And once you've said it, you don't have to repeat it, but cause us to stand on it and make us to be men and women of faith, to begin to expect the unexpected, to think the unthinkable. Father, I ask you to forgive me for my smallness of faith, for the slowness of growth in my own Christian experience. I want you to know that I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to, as David said, as the heart panteth after the water brook, that my heart will pant after thee, O God. Put a deeper hunger and a deeper thirst for the things of the Spirit in my life, that others around me will see Jesus Christ in all of his beauty living in me. Forgive me, Father, for the many times that I have failed to listen and have moved out ahead and done what I wanted to do or what I thought maybe I could do on my own. And consequently, Lord, there hasn't been the fruit that there ought to be. I ask in Jesus' name this morning that you'll cause my life to be quickened by the Spirit of God to really hunger and thirst to see the anointing of God in everything that's done in this body. Every bit of teaching that goes forth will have your stamp of approval, your anointing on it, and that hearts will be challenged. Father, I ask you to challenge us this morning to accept your word that says, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the church. That you'll take the earwax out of our ears and that you'll cause us to learn to know our shepherd's voice. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Tape ministry said, Brother Joe, do you, Brother Webb, do you realize how many tapes it's going to take to send out when we send out this series? I said, well, that's all right. We'll send it out in sections then. But it's, uh, uh, it's something that the Lord has laid on my heart, and I just have not been able to get away from it. I think that God is trying to establish his body in these last days with some convictions that will cause them to stand when the storm comes. And whether you know it or not, I believe a storm is coming. Whether you realize it or not, I think it's coming faster than we can even imagine today because as the church gets closer to what God wants it to be, the Scripture says in the last day wicked men are going to grow worse and worse. And Satan is going to try to bring up a counterfeit. Uh, Dr. Hamlin was saying in his book that as the church becomes more restored to what God uh, desires the church to be, that the world church is going to try to organize more and more to, to establish that which is the counterfeit. And consequently, persecution is going to come against the church of Jesus Christ. And those who are going to stand are those who do not just have preferences, but those who have what? Conviction. You and I cannot stand if we do not know what the Word of God says and do not have convictions that it's so. 
And that's why we're teaching on this very thing. Would you turn with me to Romans, the fourth chapter? We have been talking about conviction number nine. My words must be in harmony with God's word. My words must be in harmony with God's word. Last week we talked about Mark 11, the fact that when Jesus spoke to that fig tree, he didn't pray to that fig tree. He didn't pray about that fig tree. He didn't pray. He just said it. And I said it was saying, not praying. And Christ is restoring to the church by the Holy Spirit, teaching all things and bringing all things to our remembrance, that Christ has given to the church authority to speak what God says and to expect an answer, expect to see something happen. Jesus spoke to that fig tree and said, you'll not bear fruit anymore. And when it came back the next time, it did die from the roots up. And so I said last week that faith is firmly taking God at his word, and faith cometh by and hearing by the word of God. Now that word, word of God, there at the end, is not logos. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That word at the end of that verse is not logos or written word, but it is rhema. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the rhema. When you get God's word down in your heart and you begin to ask God what he wants you to do in a situation, God will speak to you if you'll listen to him and he'll give you a rhema. He'll give you a word and you'll know in your heart that's what God wants you to do. And then faith will come to your heart and no matter what anyone else says, you'll be able to know that that thing is going to come to pass because God told you it was going to come to pass. You understand what I'm saying? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, whenever you get a rhema, what do you have to do? Take it to the Word. That's right. If you get a rhema from God, get something that you think is from God, you take it to the Scriptures and see if it's consistent with the Word of God. If it's not consistent with the Word of God, you know its source. Reject it. But if it's consistent with God's Word and you know it's the Lord that's dealing with you and speaking to you in that matter, begin to stand on it. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the rhema. When God speaks that truth to you, you stand on it. And we're going to talk about that more. That's faith. Now, doubt is when you decide not to take God at His Word or not believe that He'll tell you His will. He said, if you lack wisdom, ask me, and I'll give it to you if you don't doubt. Don't you let that double-minded man think that he's going to receive everything what? Anything from the Lord. When you ask, you expect to receive an answer from the Lord. One of our precious young people this morning I was talking to, and I said, well, the Lord can show you as to what you should do. And they said, well, I really have difficulty hearing when I pray ever hearing the Lord say something to me. And I said to them, well, there is a booklet that I just read that's been a real blessing and encouragement to me by a friend of mine. And her name is Sarah Trollinger. One of these days, Lord willing, maybe Sarah can come and share what the Lord has shown her in that little book to our body here. But there's a little booklet out called Breakthrough. Breakthrough. And it's the experience of Sarah Trollinger through her friend that was here for our seminar on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What's her name? Virginia Lively. She had been listening to Virginia Lively speak, and when Virginia Lively spoke, she says, I could tell that Virginia Lively literally had the Lord speaking to her on a regular basis. And she thought, how did she do that? And as she taught her about this, she went home and began to practice this uh, listening for the Lord to speak to her, going through the steps and the principles that are necessary. And she says, before long, God began to speak to me. And I began to recognize his voice. And she gives examples in there and steps exactly how to listen for God to speak to you. 
And I said, this, this person, I said, you need to get that booklet. I'll try to get a copy. You need to get it and read it and study it and begin to practice that thing. You remember a couple of weeks ago I told you that the Lord had told me before Sunday that, number one, I was going to be able to preach, even though my doctor and the voice said I wasn't going to be able to. And not only would I preach, but that there would be fruit. And then he gave me a quick, just a, a flash that I could see the person, where they were sitting, exactly where they were going to be sitting, and that they would be raising their hand, that they would be committing their life to Christ. Now, that was exciting. Since then, I have a notebook now, and I'm writing down, listening to the Lord, and I'm writing down the things that I think God is trying to say to me. I confirm them with a word to see if they're consistent with the word, and I just leave them there and see what happens. But in that book, it's, it's necessary for us, if we're going to ask God to speak to us, to expect Him to speak to us. And then when He speaks to us, respond accordingly. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the rhema. Stand on it. You stand on that which is not so, as though it is so, in order that it may be so. Now, Romans, the fourth chapter, we want to go on quickly here. I want to give you an example of this, how it actually happened. Romans 4.1, What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. What's he saying? He's saying, now the first thing I want you to see is that this truth that came to Abraham didn't come to him after he was circumcised. It came to him before he was circumcised, before he was, quote, a Jew. He was a man that God spoke to, and he responded by faith, and therefore he became the father of faith, and when he responded by faith, then God says, now I'm going to use you, and he had him circumcised, and that was the beginning of the Jewish nation. But he said he did this thing, he believed before he ever became a Jew, and consequently he's not only the father of the Jews, but he's the father of all who step out and believe God by faith. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had, already had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness may be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had, being yet uncircumcised. So he's saying that he is the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law wasn't even there yet. You see, circumcision wasn't even there yet. It was given to him beforehand. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, 
to the end, or so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. All the seed. Now, just keep your finger right there a moment and look over at Galatians, the third chapter, and the 28th and 29th verses. This is what he's saying again, only clarifies a little more in the book of Galatians. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. He says that it might be to all the seed. I want you to know that you and I have the promises of Abraham coming to us today, too. There is neither what? Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye what? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises. The Living Bible says all of God's promises to him belong to us. All of God's promises to him, to Abraham, belong to us. All right? Now, back to verse 16. To the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, past tense. I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickened the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. What? Now, there's exactly what I've been saying, but it's in Scripture. He's saying the one that came to Abraham and told him what he was going to do is the same one who calls those things which are not as though they are in order that they might be so. God spoke and said, world and universe, be. And what happened? It beed. <laughs> it beed. Let there be light, and there was light, and that light continued to expand, and when God spoke, it happened. He spoke faith. All things are possible to them that what? Believe, those that have faith. You see, Satan has bound up the understanding of God's people today to make them think that we have to walk in a natural path when God said that if we'll begin to confess what he says, even when we don't see it and don't experience it, as though it's already taking place or already has taken place, that allows God to make it take place. What did he say there in Mark 11 last week? Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, when you, if you say these things, it shall come to pass. Now, I don't think he just means you just say it, but I think you just begin to confess it. That's right. It's, God has already provided it. It's mine. I'm going to walk it out. But where is it? Well, it's already provided. It isn't in my hand. But that doesn't make any difference. God's promise is better than what's in my hand. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. All the saints of God that are demonstrated and expounded upon in the book of Hebrews, it said none of them received that city that they looked for. Yet they walked by faith because God promised it to them. And I got news for you, they've got it. And God honored them and called that faith righteousness. Imputed righteousness to them because they had faith saying that which was not as though it were in order that it might be so. Verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now, let me just stop there and, and, and talk to you about this. Some time ago I spoke on this too. Uh, Abraham had to do faith talk. He had to do faith talk. Now, you know that the word Abram means father of many. And here was Sarah, and here were Abraham, both of them, 
elderly people, I mean, when I talk about elders, no one here was near their age today. Sarah was at least 90. Abraham was around 100. And God said to them, I want you two to know that you're going to have a son. And they all went, sure. <laughs> Excuse me, Father. Sure. Yes. We're, yeah, Sarah, we're going to have a son. Now, God doesn't let that get away. Do you know what the word Isaac means? Laughter. Laugh at me, will you? All right. Call that son Isaac so that every time you call him in the house, you remember that you laughed at what I said to you. Can you imagine? That's not as bad, of course, as the fellow I told you about up in Minnesota, a little boy whose name was Nuffer. And we asked him, why in the world? I said, that's a nickname. He said, no, that's my name, Nuffer. I said, Nuffer, why would they put that on you? He said, because when they said when they had me, that was enough. And so they named me Nuffer. And every time they called him to the house, they knew that's all the kids we want right there is Nuffer. And so God says, you call him laughter so that you'll remember that you laughed at me when I told you you were going to have children. Can you imagine the experience that I shared with you some time ago? Abraham being the father of many, and everybody come around saying, Abram, how are you? Well, I'm fine. Do you have any family? Well, no, not yet. Well, then why do you call yourself Abram? Why don't you have your name changed? I mean, you know, Esau or something. Anything would be better than that. Well, maybe you're right, he said. So God says, Abram, I want you to go have your name changed. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. This has been embarrassing to be called the father of many, and here I haven't got any kids. We're just totally barren. He says, I want you to go down to the city clerk's office or wherever you have to go, and you tell them that you want your name changed. And so he goes in and says, I want my name changed. I don't want to be Abram anymore. He says, boy, you're getting smart finally. At 100 years of age, you're finally learning that it's kind of embarrassing to be called father of many, and here you're barren. No children whatsoever. He says, what do you want it changed to? He says, Abraham. That means father of a multitude or father of nations. Well, I'm going to tell you again, that's faith talking. My name is Abram, and I'm barren. And God says, now you're 100 years of age, call yourself Abraham. Lord, let's fill up, first of all, Abram, so I can get over here and start talking about Abraham, you know. No, you speak that which is not so as though it is so, in order that it may be what? That's faith talking. Now, God says, I want you to, Abraham, I want you to start thinking about what I said, and I want you to begin to confess what I said to you. You know, he didn't say you're going to have a son, and then nine months later they had a son. Whenever his face got down a little bit, he'd come out and say, God, you, look at this body. You're telling me that I'm going to... Have you seen Sarah lately, Lord? Look at her. You said we're going to have a son. So Abraham, God says, Abraham, come on outside a minute. Look up at the stars. You ever, have any of you ever been out up in the mountains where all there's no lights around up in the mountains? in the middle of the night, in the clear night, the Ed has, and you look up and it just looks like there's nothing but stars, doesn't it? It just looks like the whole sky is stars. We were out in Denver, we were up a mile higher, you know, and we went way up in the mountains and camped overnight, and I looked up and I said, I, didn't, I never imagined there were that many stars in the sky. Billions of them. God says, Abraham, when you look at the stars, every time you look at them, I want you to remember that you're going to have that many kids. <laughs> Just as, just as they're innumerable, that's how many kids you're going to have. So whenever you look at it, I want you to say, Lord, that's how many kids I'm going to have. I said, Lord, that's how many kids I'm going to have? And he said, now, Abram, Abraham, whenever you look up like that, I want you to remember that. But sometimes you're looking down. So Abraham, I want you to look down at the ground. He didn't say sand. Now, he said dust. He said, look at that dust. How many of you know what dust is? If you don't know what dust is, on some dry day, drive down my driveway. You know, dust. Dust everywhere. He says, look at the dust. Now, if you can count the particles of dust, he said, you'll be able to number your children, but that's how many children you're going to have is the dust of the ground. 
Now think on that. And as Abraham was walking along with no children, with a wife that looked like she belonged in a nursing home, he was walking along and saying, Lord, I'm just old. Look at those stars. I'm going to have as many kids as there are stars. <laughs> Lord, look at this. Look at all the dust on the ground. I'm going to have as many kids as there is dust on the ground. You know what he was doing? Incubating faith, as Dr. Cho called it. Now, logic would tell you that Abraham and Sarah would not have children, and their faith stumbled and staggered. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an Arab around today. When, they asked, when Sarah told him to take Hagar and have a child by her, that was their faith stumbling. And I'll tell you, there are many times when you and I fall in our faith walk. But God just said, look at the stars, look at the... Wherever you're looking, just remember, kids, 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 kids. Talking, I'm going to have kids like it, kids like it. Boy, I'm going to have kids. Kids ever. Look at my body. Don't worry about your body. I'm going to have kids. God said it. Verse 19. And by the way, he didn't, he didn't say that according to what he felt or heard or anything else, did he? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think at the age of 100 I'm going to be feeling or thinking about having children, Physically. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead. That time comes when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He put that out of his mind. When God speaks to you and says, pray for such and such, and I'm going to heal them, you say, but God, that's incurable. God says, put that out of your mind. If I tell you that I'll heal them, put that out of your mind. You see how he worked it? He forgot all about the fact that his body was dead. He forgot all about the deadness of Sarah's womb. He put that out of his mind, and he began to confess what God said. Not feel what God said, but confess what God said. Now, let me tell you something. This is not milk that I'm feeding you today, but I'm telling you something. If your words are going to harmonize with God's word, then you better say what God says. Abraham did that, and God said he's the father of faith. Now, if we want to be like the father of faith, we better do what he did. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Let me show you how strong it became. Isaac was born. And then God tried and tested him again. He said, now, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and take him up on the mountain, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt sacrifice. Now, he must have been 115, 120. But when he started to go up on the mountain, he said to the servants, they went so far, he said, now you stay here, and watch it now, he said, and we'll be back. You get that? He said to the servants, we're going to go up on the mountain, but we'll be back. My son and I will be back. Now, he was going up on the mountain to offer his son as a sacrifice, but he turns to the servants and says, now, don't worry about it. We'll be back. Well, what made him say that? Faith talking, wasn't it? The book of Hebrews said that Abraham knew that God was going to do one of two things. God was getting ready to perform a miracle in an impossible situation. He said either he was going to raise Isaac from the dead or he was going to give him another son. God, you told me to offer him as a sacrifice. Either he's going to raise him from the dead or give him another son. He went up on the mountain and raised the knife, and God said, that's all I wanted to know. Find out if you'd be obedient to me. Now, here's a ram. Of course, when his son was going up the mountain, he said, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? He said, and son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Now, that was prophetic. God did provide himself a sacrifice in Jesus Christ. But Abraham walked by faith. 
and God did provide a sacrifice immediately, and later on he provided a ram with his horns caught in the thicket. And Abraham finally took that ram and offered him as a sacrifice, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded. Now that has to be based upon a sure promise. I see a lot of people going around with positive mental attitude. I'm not talking about a positive mental attitude. I'm talking about finding a word from the Lord to you and making sure that that word is consistent with the word of God and beginning to stand on that word at any cost, even if it looks impossible, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform and there it, therefore it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, I'm going to keep on reading because it's important. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for what? For us also. God didn't just let Abraham go through that so that Abraham could learn something. He let Abraham go through that so we could learn something. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now mark out that chapter 5. Don't look at that break. That is not in an inspired break. That was not, you know, Holy Spirit didn't make chapter 4 and 5 in here. Just eliminate that chapter 5 and go right on reading. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, with expectancy, in other words. And not only so, but we, not only Abraham, but we, what? We, what? Glory in tribulation. That was a tribulation that the Lord laid on Abraham. And when we see what Abraham got because he walked it out, because he confessed it out, because he stayed steadfast, because he doubted not, he stood on things that were not so as though they were so, in order that they may be so. He says, now recognizing that truth, we as believers stand in faith and glory in tribulation. You see why we're supposed to glory in tribulation? God's getting ready to perform a miracle. Now, don't get too excited there. Just, just, just slow down. Take it easy out there. I hate to wake any of you up. We glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Now he says, learn from what Abraham did. Abraham confessed what was not so as it was so in order that it may be so. You say, well, boy, it should be a lot easier if God would just tell me what he's going to do and then just do it and not have to wait around. And, you know, all this waiting period just drives me up the wall. Well, then you need to memorize Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, Soar my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 10 and 11, too, because they're exciting. For as rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth out of my mouth. 
it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Do you know why we aren't having more people stand by faith today? Because there's very few Christians who are hearing God speak to them. They're not getting that rhema from the Lord. They're not spending that quiet time before the Lord and saying, Lord, speak to my heart. Let me know what you want me to do in this situation. Let me tell you something. Seeing is not believing. The world says seeing is believing. Seeing is not believing, according to God's Word. Believing is believing. Jesus said, Blessed are they who, having not seen, yet believe, have yet, yet have believed. If you want to be blessed, Begin to quit just confessing what you see and begin to confess what you believe God says to you in your present situation. And there in Mark, the 11th chapters we read the other day, there's only two conditions there. Number one was believing, and number two was speaking it. And you know why we don't speak much? Because we aren't believing much. We're afraid to really get quiet before God and get a word from the Lord and then stand on it. Why? Somebody might make a fool out of me, you know. I might get out there on a branch and have it cut off on me. I mean, can I really trust God? I mean, most of the time, all God wants to do is get me in a tough situation where I'm miserable. No, no. A lot of times we get ourselves in tough situations where we're miserable because we won't stop and let Him tell us what to do, and we just say, full speed ahead. And I want to tell you again, what I'm teaching you today is not mind over matter. It's not positive thinking. It's God over everything. Believing that God is over everything. There is nothing impossible with God. All things are possible with God, and all things are possible to them that believe. Mark 9, 23, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Once you believe it, once you know it's true to God's word, say it. Speak it out in harmony with God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. And faith will activate God to where he can take a hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman and give them a child, even though his body is dead and her womb is dead. How did it happen? Because he incubated. He thought on it. He let faith work up. God said it to me. He said it's like the stars. He said it's like the dust. God, every time I see the stars, every time I see the dust, all I see are children. That's what you told me. You know, it's really, I have to laugh, Lord, because if I look at it in the natural, and I can't look at it in the natural, because that way it's totally impossible. So I don't look at it in the natural. You just said it. And look at all those stars. I can hardly believe. Man, that many kids? That many kids? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And when that child came, said, Sarah, <laughs> we haven't got much choice. We're going to have to name him Isaac. Just in case we forget what we told God when he told us. But once he began to speak in harmony with God's word, it happened. And so he's the father of our faith. And I want to say to you today, God, I believe this, God is looking for a people that will say what he says. Now I'm going to tell you one other thing. I agree with Dr. Hammond. I don't think that we have scratched the surface as to what God wants to restore to the church in this day. We are playing tiddlywinks. Can I say that again? We're playing tiddlywinks with what God wants to do. Oh, we get all excited because we get a little word over here. We get all excited because we see a little healing over here. But I think we're just playing tiddlywinks. I think God says, hey, we're just beginning to open the door. You haven't even seen my glory yet. You say, now, Brother Webb, don't get out on a limb. I'm not out on a limb. 
I'm stepping out on the word. All things are possible to them that believe. And I'm asking God to cause my believer to get activated. Will you ask him to make your believer to get activated? You'll begin to confess what is not so, as though it is so, in order that it may be so, in harmony with God's word. If we do it, God's going to send a revival. Now, let me tell you something again. This can't be a preference. It can't be just a convenience. You and I have got to become convicted of the fact that our words absolutely must harmonize with God's word if we expect anything from him. He says if we're double-minded on something, don't expect anything. I remember somebody telling me one time, if you aim at nothing, you'll usually hit it with perfect accuracy. So we better aim at something. And someone said, you might as well aim your gun at the stars as to aim it at a buzzard because it's no harder on the gun. And so if we're going to believe, we better believe God for a lot and not just for a little. Now, if you want to punch the person next to you and wake them up, you tell him what I said, will you? Praise the Lord. Father, we confess your word is true. We confess that in many cases our faith has been very, very small. And if we were living in the day when you were walking on the earth, you would have turned to us and said, Oh, you have little faith. We ask, first of all, that you'll forgive us in the name of Jesus. And by the power of the Spirit of God, activate our faith. As a body of believers, we want to confess to you, Father, we know that you have just begun and that we have been dragging our feet. But we ask in Jesus' name that whatever it takes, whatever you have to do, that you cause this body to move and flow in the things of the Spirit, that we'll be willing and able and ready to do those things that you want us to do in these last days. We know that we're in the last days. and We know that you're restoring and getting the bride ready for the bridegroom. In the name of Jesus, I ask that you'll not put us on a shelf, but that you'll cause us to be a people of faith, that we'll activate that faith that you demonstrated through Abraham, that we'll be able to say those things that are not so as though they are so in order that they may be so. Lord, let your glory be manifested in this body in the days ahead, and let our words harmonize in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Praise the Lord. We have been speaking for some time on the series, Ten Basic Convictions Every Family Should Have, and we've been talking on the ninth one, and now we're going to go to the last half of the ninth one, the first half was my words must be in harmony with God's word. We're talking about not preferences, but convictions. If we as Christians are going to expect God's spirit to work in our lives, we have to begin to say what God says. And when God speaks a word to us, we have to say what he speaks to us, contrary to what the circumstances outside may be. And we've talked all about that aspect of it and covered it for several Sundays now, and we want to go to the last half of it, my words must be in harmony with God's word, especially when reproving and restoring a Christian brother. You remember some time ago, several weeks ago, I talked to you and shared with you about what Dr. George Sweeting from Moody Bible Institute had said. He said that backsliding, backsliding is rarely a blowout, but usually a slow leak. 
God spoke to some hearts that morning when I brought that to you. Backsliding is rarely a blowout. Usually it is a slow leap. And uh, many, many times you and I will read the newspapers or read Christian periodicals and all of a sudden we'll say, what happened? This brother that was so powerful in the Word of God and so strong and dynamic and influential in his preaching, suddenly we read where he has fallen into sin, he's gotten away from God, he is he's just completely walked away from that which he once spoke. How could that possibly happen? And in church after church, pastors today are saying, here was a family, here was an individual in a family, here was a church leader who was walking along, and all of a sudden it just seems like the whole bottom fell out and they went completely away. How could that have possibly happened? Well, again, let me tell you something. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's never a blowout. Usually never a blowout. It's usually just a slow leak. And the reason we don't notice it is because we fail to look and see the warning signs in time when a person is having spiritual difficulty. Now, I want to admit to you, many times as a pastor, I have to confess to that problem. Not being able to sense early enough the signs of backsliding where I can go and restore a brother or restore a sister in the things of the Lord. Because you see, generally speaking, now get this down in your heart, generally speaking, backsliding starts in the closet. You say, what do you mean by that? I get by too many clothes? No. I mean, Jesus said, if you want answers to prayer, you go in the closet and pray all by yourself in secret, and your Heavenly Father hearing in secret will answer you openly. And backsliding usually starts there at that prayer time. When we begin to become casual and indifferent about that meeting with God and meditating on the Word of God and letting the Word of God search out our hearts. You know, some of the hardest, one of the hardest things I find as a pastor to be able to do is to find that time without looking like I'm not doing something and having someone find something for me to do is that time of meditation. To sit sometimes and lean back and close my eyes and meditate on the Word of God. Some people come by and say, well, it looks like the preacher's just loafing again. But there has to be those times when you take a scripture verse and let the Word of God get that down into your spirit. Now, you may be able to work and do that. Some others may have to sit and do that. Some people can drive and do that. But usually a breakdown or a, the beginning of backsliding comes in the area of prayer and meditation and self-examination. And that's why it's hard to detect. We don't follow each other around in that area. It begins to either diminish or it becomes superficial. We still go through all the forms. We still go through all the outward motions, but it isn't the same vitally alive experience that we once had. That's where it begins. That's why it becomes a slow leak. We don't just all of a sudden get up and quit having devotions, but we begin to skip. We don't quit prayer, but we just begin to skip our prayers, make them a little bit shorter and get a little bit busier, and it begins that way. I want us this morning show you we're going to talk about how to restore, have our words agree and be in harmony with God's word, especially when reproving and restoring a brother. But first of all, I think it's well for us to know the causes of backsliding. The first one, I believe, that takes place in the area of, I mean, in the life of a believer is when they begin yielding in an area of their weakness. Satan knows where you and I are the weakest. He knows our Achilles heel. Well, don't think that he's, he would be so foolish as not to know where he could have the greatest chance of getting at us. I mean, if, if Lyman High School will have Coach Pletcher go all the way to Daytona Beach 
and all the way to Lakeland and all the way somewhere else to these different high schools and crawl up in the top of the bleachers and watch them play football or watch them wrestle and write down notes as to what they do when they play football and what they do when they wrestle, if those who are going to be in boxing tournaments will take films of someone that's boxing and go home and study them meticulously to see if they leave their left arm down a little bit too low or if they drop their right arm a little bit or when they swing their right arm, they leave themselves wide open for a left, I mean, for a right from the other person. They study them completely to find every weakness in that individual so that they can have a chance to beat them. Now, don't be foolish. If, if, <laughs> if we do that, what do you think Satan does? He looks for the Achilles heel, and that's why Paul tells us it is so vital for us to have that time of prayer and self-examination and meditation on the Word of God that every morning we get up and put on the whole what? Armor of God that we may be able to stand. What he's saying is if Satan is out there looking for our Achilles heel, if we don't put on the whole armor of God every day, the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to yield in an area of our weakness. When it doesn't become a vital experience in our life every day for getting into God's Word and praying and seeking God's faith. Let me assure you that if you're a new Christian and you haven't found that time to be alone with God every day, early in the morning or late at night or in the middle of the day or whenever it is, find that time to be alone with God and read His Word and pray and meditate on His Word and let Him speak to your heart. There's trouble down the road because Satan's going to get you sooner or later. That becomes your food. That becomes your daily sustenance. Second thing second cause of backsliding is a preoccupation with temporal things. Jesus said in Mark, the fourth chapter, in the 19th verse, that a sower went forth to sow. And the first illustration was that some of it fell on the hard path, and the birds came and snatched it away. The second fell on shallow ground, and it gladly received the seed and sprung forth into life, but when the sun came up, it dried it up and it died because there was no depth and there was no root in it. But the third one, he said in 419, Mark 419, he spoke about the seed that fell amongst the thorns and the thistles. Later, when his disciples asked him what that indicated, he said in the 19th verse, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of the riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Now, let me just clarify one thing. I am not saying that God's Word is saying that prosperity is a cause of spiritual decline or backsliding. I'm saying that it can be. The Word of God does not say money is the root of all evil, but rather the what? Love of money is the root of all evil. And when a person begins to have financial success and prosperity and material blessings come to them, when those things begin to preoccupy their time, and those things become of utmost importance to them rather than just a part of the flow of God's blessing to them and them becoming responsible as good stewards of those things the Lord gives to them, if they become preoccupied with that, then that is one of the causes of backsliding. Third cause is taking our blessings for granted. Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter? Deuteronomy, chapter 8. I want to begin reading with verse 10. I'm going to start with verse 7, though, I think. Verse 7. The third cause of backsliding is taking our blessings for granted. You know why? That, that's why I say from time to time here in the church, when this morning I had announced to you two miracles that have happened. 
You know what happens? We almost take it for granted. We just expect those things to happen. And the Lord says that when he blesses us, we should give praise and thanks and worship to the Lord. It should be a spontaneous thing. But it's very, very difficult. It's almost, almost come place to say, well, he did it again. That just proves his faithfulness. Rather than, Lord, we just bless you and praise you and worship you for your faithfulness. And then know that the, that the Lord dwells in the praises of his people. That he'll come and bless us more. He wants to hear our praise. He wants to hear our thanksgiving. But you know, as Baptists, we're not supposed to get too excited. But God wants us to get excited. If you read the Psalms, it tells us that we're supposed to make a loud racket. When's the last time you ever got alone and started making a loud racket before the Lord? Some people say, now, Brother Webb, that's not Baptist. I don't care if it's Baptist. That's what the Word says. The Scripture says, make a happy racket before the Lord, if you want the Hebrew translation. And it means sometimes get so excited that you start clapping before the Lord and raising your hands and shouting a little bit. Well, that's just not my nature. Well, then you better get rid of that nature and get God's nature. Because that's what he said we're supposed to do. Rather than take God's blessings for granted. Look what happened in the chapter of Deuteronomy, starting with verse 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, the land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack what? Anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt... Oh, that's a command, isn't it? And when you eat, all these things that I've given to you, stop and bless the Lord. Don't just wipe your mouth off and let's go, guys. Realize that every bite you put in your mouth, he says, is a gift and a blessing from God. You know, I can remember as a new Christian running around some of the young people, and when we'd go to a restaurant, they'd say, last one, put the hand up, have to pray. And I'd think, what is going on? It's a punishment to have to return thanks to God for his blessings. Last one with the finger in the air has to pray. There's something out of line there. The Word says we all ought to bless the Lord when we receive food. I get some of those knowing smiles like somebody's been involved in that. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest. When thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and thou what? Forget the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You don't need him anymore. Lord, I don't need to trust you anymore. I've got a couple hundred thousand in the bank. I've got all these cattle out here. I've got this nice home now. I've got all this property. I've got my crops going. I don't need you anymore. Lord, I'll call on you if I need you. That's why Jesus said it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not because of their riches, but because they begin to trust in their riches. Riches can be gone overnight. You don't believe me? Ask Job who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein there were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought and, where, and there was no water, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fled, fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee 
to do the good at the latter end. Why did he send them through that time of, of testing and trial in the wilderness? That he might prove them and that he might humble them. Let me tell you something. There is not, There are not many things more humbling than to have to receive and to be dependent on someone else. I can still remember a time in my life and my ministry when uh, we were not in a church at that time and finances were right down to zilch and we were driving a car with many miles on it and the tires were right down to the threads and then to have some people that God spoke to come over and knock on our door one day and they said, we open the garage door, we open the garage door and in walked two men with one tire in each hand and I said, what are you doing? They said, we're going to put these in your trunk. We're going to take your car down. We're going to put some new tires on. I said, no, you don't need to do that. And I thought, whoa, don't do that. I didn't want to have to receive. I didn't want me to be dependent on someone else. To have people come around and from time to time give us a little bit of money to, just to see us through the week. Oh, there's something inside that just revolves at that fact. And God says, that's just exactly why I ran you through the wilderness all those years. First of all, to humble you and to prove you, to see if you'd be faithful even during the hard times. See if you'd trust me and believe me to take care of you when it seemed impossible, to where you'll never again lean on the arm of flesh. You'll always lean on me. Now, let me tell you something. God did that to the Jews for 40 years. I don't know how long he's going to have to do it with you and me. But he knows exactly how many times we have to walk around in that wilderness until we're ready to totally trust him, and he can say, Now I can take you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, know something? There will be some saints that will be wandering around in the wilderness with one wooden leg in a knothole going in a circle for the rest of their lives because they'll never learn to trust the Lord and let him humble them and cause them to depend upon him totally. That's true. He doesn't want to keep them out in the wilderness. He didn't even want them to go into the wilderness. He wanted them to go right into the promised land and receive the blessing. But because of their unbelief, he couldn't do it. So he said, I want to take you out here now, and I'm going to humble you, and I'm going to teach you to depend on me completely, and I'm going to prove you to see if you really love me. Verse 17, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. God forbid that any Christian ever say that. You say that, and you're in trouble. That's why he has to take you through testing times and trying times so that you'll never, ever forget that you cannot take the blessings of God for granted, that they all come from his hand. Verse 18, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant with which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. In other words, he said, if you'll do this and remember the Lord your God, he'll be able to fulfill his promises and fulfill his word to you. Now, I read in the New Testament that God hath redeemed you and me from the curse of the law that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Now, this blessing was part of the blessing that came to Abraham, wasn't it? He was going to give him a land flowing with milk and honey and all those good things. You know, God has promised that same prosperity to us, but one of the things we have to be careful in our lives is to see to it that we have that wilderness experience long enough so that when we go into the land, we don't forget the blessings of the Lord and take them for granted. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, well, by the way, let me before we get on to that, let's, just let me say that if you'll read the life of the nation of Israel, I've mentioned this before, but it's very important for you to see it, that there would be obedience on the part of the children of Israel and blessings 
and God would pour out his blessings on them, and then they would forget the Lord, and they would sin, and they would backslide, and he would take them into captivity. And while they're in captivity, they would repent and come back to obedience, and he would restore them back into the land, and he would bless them, and they'd begin to multiply and have all this abundance, and again they'd forget the Lord, and he'd have to again chastise them and take them out into captivity, and they would repent. And that was just like a cycle. And you know, when I was a new Christian, I used to think, boy, how dumb those Israelites were. Why didn't they learn? You know, I don't say that very much anymore. I've been a Christian long enough that I say, Lord, I just see myself over and over again in that nation of Israel. We tend to forget the blessings of the Lord, and he has to take us back out in the wilderness. But here, let me run this by you one more time, see if you got it now, that everything comes from me. The fourth thing, allowing adversity to triumph. I don't know how many times in my ministry I have seen this happen in the life of believers. They, God is taking them through the wilderness experience. God is just really rubbing them with the sandpaper and it puts them up against all kinds of people that have rough edges and sandpaper on them and tries to get them polished down and tries to get them prepared to be used of him. And, you know, they get right close to being where God can begin to bless them and they just give up and they just get bitter and they get mad at God and they get all upset and they begin to have self-pity and, uh, well, I, I was faithful for 15 years, I was faithful for four years, I was faithful for eight years, and it just, it just wouldn't give up. What's the use? And they quit. And Satan just keeps working on them and working on them and working on them. Someone said one time that, this is not a true story, but said that they went into a garage sale, I guess I'd call it, or a flea market that Satan was holding one time. And when they got in there here, Satan had all of his tools for display out on the table. And over here was, uh, you know, pornography for $3, and over here this tool of anger for $4, and over here was a tool of discouragement, and he had a huge price on that, and it looked like it was just battered to pieces. And he said, why in the world do you have some of these others that haven't been used very much, and you got such a low price on them, but this discouragement here, it looks like it's almost worn out, and you got such a big price on it. He says, because that's the one I've been able to use the most on Christians, and it's always worked. Discouragement. You see, if Satan can't keep you away from Christ, he'll try to keep you discouraged. And so many times, one of the things that will begin backsliding, and the, the cause of backsliding in the life of a believer, is that they'll come to the place where they just think they can't take it anymore, and they begin to have self-pity. They begin to get mad at God, and they stop their Bible reading. They stop going to church regularly. They think, what's the use? I've gone to church all this time now. They go back to work, and they quit witnessing because they stumble and stumble and stumble and think, well, nobody's going to listen to me more. If I do it again, I'll just embarrass myself. If I say anything more for the Lord, and consequently, they quit praying, and Satan's got them going right down the hill that he wants them to go on. Four causes of backsliding. Next, I want you to notice five outward evidences of backsliding in the life of a believer. We're talking about how to restore a Christian. What do we look for? First of all, if you want to see someone that's beginning to backslide, you find someone that is beginning to have a loss of interest in Christian fellowship. A loss of interest in Christian fellowship. You know, there's nothing more exciting to a pastor than to see a new Christian. Someone who has recently been saved that begins to get into the Word of God, and they'll come back to the pastor and say, Pastor, you know what I just saw last night? I was reading the Bible, and I saw this. I didn't know that was it. Isn't that exciting? That same person will go over to their neighbor, they'll go to their friends at work, they'll go, let me tell you what happened last night. I invited Jesus Christ into my life and he took away all my sins and I've been made a child of God and I'm telling you, I've got a joy and a peace like I've never had before. You've seen them. 
You just wish that you could get them away from some of the older Christians, you know, that are going to come around and just throw cold water on them. Oh, I understand your excitement, but you'll cool off one of these days, you know. You'll see that it isn't all a bed of roses. I'm glad to see you excited now, but you just wait until the, the dirt hits the fan, you know. Cold water brigade, they call them. A time when their best friends were always Christians. A time when wherever you'd see them, they'd be around other believers, talking about the Word of God, fellowshipping in the things of God, and they were sensitive to sin. I mean, if it even looked shady, they didn't want anything to do with it. And you remember a time in your life when some things were a lot, you're a lot more sensitive to some things than you are today? When some sins really bugged you more than they did, more than they do today? Watch out. That's one of the evidences. And you'll begin to see that there's just a cooling off in their desire for Christian fellowship. You'll find out that they become a little more critical of the Christians. You're around them, and they won't say too much except they'll say, yeah, you know, brother such and such over there, he's supposed to be that big spiritual thing, you know, and if you only knew, boy, and that begins to pour out of their mouths. That's the first step. And then you begin to see them gathering around them friends that are not Christian friends. And they begin to shift from Christian friends over to more non-Christian friends. I'm, I'm talking about an outward evidence of a person starting to backslide and get away from that position that God wants them to be in, in that close walk with the Lord. And then you begin to find them very, very miserable. Where that sparkle was now, there's just a darkness in their face. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been in the ministry long enough to have seen people literally look like they were lighted up from within, and just within a year, year and a half, to look at them, and they are drifting away from the Lord, and you try to get a hold of them, and they won't let you. You try to talk to me, you know, again, I tell you, whenever a Christian starts backsliding, I'm always looking around to see if, you know, if I forgot my underarm deodorant, if I didn't brush my teeth, or if I look like I have the plague or leprosy or something, because I'm one of the first ones they'll try to get away from. You know, I literally have seen in my church ministry, I have seen people standing away from the church door when I'm standing at the door to go out. And I have seen them wait for me. They'll stand maybe 10 feet away and wait for me to turn to shake hands with someone and out the door they go while my back is turned. Now, I've been in the ministry long enough that I have seen this happening, and I'll turn and shake hands and I'll turn and say, Hi, how are you? Just they get to the door, you know. Just wanted to tell you I love you, and they just... <clears throat> and I know what's going on. The old devil trying to get to them. They're miserable. But that's one of the first outward signs of backsliding. The second one is a waning desire to attend church. Boy, when they got saved, you couldn't open the church doors for what they'd be there. They'd be pulling on the handle when you tried to unlock it. My father thought that I had gone crazy over religion when I became a Christian. I can still remember that every time that church door would open, I wanted to be there. Whenever they went out to the old folks' home for a meeting, I wanted to be there. If they went down to the mission, I wanted to be there. If they had a street meeting, I wanted to be there. If they had singsporations, I wanted to be there. You couldn't give me enough church. I didn't have a Christian home, but you couldn't give me enough fellowship in God's house. And boy, you let me see somebody else get saved, and I'd be right there to hug them and tell them how happy I was and how thrilled it was, to, how thrilled it was to see them walking with the Lord and knowing the Lord now. And if I could help them at all, let me know. Remember that time in your life when you used to stand there and cry when someone else would get saved and go up and hug them and tell them how thrilled you were? Do we get as excited today about it? second outward sign of backsliding is a waning desire to attend church services. You say, Brother Webb, that's legalism. Well, that's one of the things that they first start saying. They get defensive and say, well, you expect me to be here every time the church doors open. That's getting into legalism. No, I'll tell you, if, 
if they're a guy and a gal are in love of one another and they're engaged to be married, if she said, honey, I want to see you every night this week, can you imagine him saying, now oh, come on, get off that legalism kick, you know. Honey, I can't, do you suppose we could just spend all day Saturday together out here at a picnic, I'll prepare the lunch and everything. Look, don't expect Saturdays too, you're getting legalistic now. You know that's ridiculous. And when a person has a love relationship to Jesus Christ, one of the greatest joys of his life is to be with other believers. Skip said it when he said about his family, they could come up here. He wanted to be with the body this coming Saturday. That's where God's blessing was going to be, and he wanted to be a part of that. Second thing that I see when they come to church after they're starting to backslide is they are the clock watchers and clock shakers. I mean, I don't mind a person once in a while when I'm preaching look at the watch like this, but when they take them off and go like this, and they're miserable. They just wish that it would get over with and they can get out of there. They don't want to get involved and they head for that door as quickly as they possibly can. They begin to devise and develop and work out weekend trips, little mini vacations, anything they can possibly do to get, well, the, the, the washing machine broke down just as they were ready to walk out the door to go to church and they can't come to church now because they've got to fix the washing machine. Or somebody fell in the pool and splashed water all over the side and they're going to have to wipe it up tonight during the church service. And Wednesday night, of course not, because the television has a flicker in it, and if it went out during the time of the church service, they'd want to be there so they could call the service man just as quickly as possible. Now, I know that I'm, I'm trying to overemphasize something to show you something, but let me tell you something. One of the sure signs, outward signs, of backsliding is when a person ceases to hunger and thirst to be with God's people in God's house every opportunity they possibly can. I don't know about you, but do you remember when you first got saved that nothing was more exciting to you than to be with God's people? If it isn't so today, then we need to go back to that time in the closet again and begin to ask the Lord why. Hebrews 10:25 says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. All the more you see that day approaching. If we're a New Testament church, we would have to go to Acts, the second chapter, verses 42 and 47, and it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That's the way the church started, and it's supposed to get brighter and brighter unto the coming of Jesus Christ, I should think. The next outward sign is a cessation or a ceasing of personal and family devotion. I'll never forget how amazed I was at the excitement I used to have about that little New Testament in my pocket. My sister gave me a little New Testament, and you'd have thought I had gold. When I used to carry something else in that pocket with 20 of them in each one of the little boxes, I would always reach for them automatically, and I stuck that in my pocket instead, and I got into the habit of pulling that out and reading it every break I had, and how exciting it was just to be able to spend that time and then go back and start loading boxcars again and think upon what I had read. That was an exciting time. And to be able to, to awaken every morning and to be able to get down next to my bed. Now, let me tell you something. It's easy when you're single. Listen to me, young people. It's a lot easier to do that when you're single than when you're married. You married people know what I'm talking about? When you're single, you know you can go to bed. If you want to go to bed, you can go to bed and get up the next morning when you want to get up and nobody's in your room and you can read your New Testament, flip down to your knees by the side of your bed and pray and talk to the Lord for a while and let him talk to you. And when you go to bed at night, what a thrill it is to be able to see my kids reading the Word of God before they go to bed at night and spending some time in prayer. You can do that, and you need to do that. 
But if you want a sure sign of backsliding, let me ask you, do you read God's Word and do you search His Word and do you pray like you did when you first came to Jesus Christ? You say, Brother Webb, I'm too busy now. That's right. That's right. You know why? Because you have rearranged your priorities. The Word says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. Yeah, but Brother Webb, don't give me those Scripture verses. You don't know how hard it is just to make ends meet today. Yes, I do. In fact, every time we try to make them meet, somebody comes along and pulls it out a little further. But let me tell you something. Spending less time in God's presence isn't going to be the answer to the meeting of your needs because they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Because remember, it is the Lord thy God that giveth thee the power to get well. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Now, there is no excuse to say that we're so busy we can't meet with God. If we're busy, I like what, uh, oh, who was it? George Mueller, on his busy days, he would spend two hours in prayer. But he said when the load really got heavy, he spent three hours in prayer every morning. Think about it. On his busy days, he'd only spend two hours in prayer, but on his really heavy days, he would spend three hours in prayer. He'd get up an extra hour earlier because he knew that he had to have a closer contact with his Lord that day. And if we're too busy, we are too busy. Are you there? It's a sign of backsliding. The fourth one, no burden for other people. Boy, let me tell you, I can still remember when I was at work, the people at my place of employment, I can't talk about you because I don't know anything about you, but at my place of employment, I used to bug them. I know I had, sometimes we'd call it just foolish boldness, but everywhere I'd go, I don't care what would happen, it would give me a chance to talk to them about the Lord. If one of them would swear, I'd say, oh, you know him too, huh? And that just aggravated them. I didn't want to aggravate them, but I was such a young Christian. I wanted to get the word out at any cost. And they would say something, and I'd say, did you know that the Bible said, I just read this last night, the Bible said, they'd say, hey, preacher, just put it up. Will you just forget it? Get away from me, preacher. And I'd go away and say, Lord, give me another chance to get him. Give me another chance to get him. Just want to talk about the Lord. Get me out there on the highway to thumb my ride to school and back. I would hitchhike all the way to Minnesota and back to Nebraska in the spring. And at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, the first couple of years. And I'm telling you, that poor soul that picked me up. From the time I got in that car, I'd wait for the first chance I could, and wham, I'd hit him with the gospel. And by the time they let me out, they'd either get saved or they were just glad to get rid of me. I can even remember crying over some people who didn't get saved. Asking the Lord, what did I do wrong? What didn't I say right? How didn't, you know, I was just excited about sharing Jesus Christ. What happens to us? Can you remember that happening in your life when you first got saved? I know it's happening in some lives right now because different ones come and say, I was out with such and such. And, boy, I'm telling you, that guy, just as soon as he gets a chance, he tells somebody about Jesus. Don't ever lose that. Don't ever lose that. You'll lose it if you get away from that meditation of God's Word and prayer and self-examination. You'll get away from that before long because you won't have that same joy that you have now. Don't ever let anyone take that away from you. Don't ever lose that burden. Don't ever get lukewarm. 